0: That comes to mind that I heard a a guy say a few years ago, and it's just stuck with me. And um, and I think it just it just really communicates the tension that I that I feel most of most of my life uh, when it comes to this topic. And it's that money isn't everything, but it's dangerously close to oxygen. May I agree with that? It it feels that way. Like I, I don't want it to take all of my attention. And then at, at the same time, there's just this reality that, you know, I spend, we spend 50, 60 hours of our week working to, to make some of it. We got to have it to, to meet our needs. There's this reality that, that money is part of the equation of the human experience. And at the same time, we don't want it to take all of our attention. It feels like there's just kind of this, this constant tension between those two things. And, uh, and I think. You know, between us all, we all kind of have a different picture of that. Like, some love for it means, and too much attention means we want more of it and we want more things. Um, we spend a lot of time trying to protect and keep what we do have and trying to find a way to get the best price, get the best deal, try to. Give, I, tell, I tell my boys a lot of times, you know, there's one way to, to get money. There's one way to, is to earn it and to get it. The other way is just not to let it sleep out the back door, you know, not to, be, not to give up any more of it than you have to to sort of try to really protect what you do have. And on those two ends, and I've, I've decided that this is both love of money. There's the desire to have more things and to always be wanting more. And then there's this hatred of it that makes you always just wish that money didn't exist and, and trying to protect it too much, which is also means that it's got all of your attention. And it feels like I live on that end most of the time, you know. In fact, this is really funny. And if you know the, the stereotype, you'll, you'll get this. I've got an Indian friend that just the other day told me he wanted me to do the dealing for him in this thing because he thought I could get a better deal than he could, <laughs> which is pretty, really, actually pretty funny. But part of that goes back a long time in me. I mean, Terry and I have been on one cruise and uh, it was a cruise where they, they went out to Cozumel. You got off the boat, and you, I just remember we had enough time to eat at a Mexican restaurant. I mean, you—I mean, if you've been to a Mexican restaurant, you know. Like, you look at the menu and say, hey, I want a quesadilla, and it's, at, it's in front of you. Like, immediately. It's there. I said quesadilla on purpose. I know how you say it. Uh, so, I mean, it's quick. So we got Mexican food, and then we, we got back on the boat. And, uh, and the room we had was in the belly of the beast, and it had an ocean view, but I'm pretty sure we were underneath the water. <laughs> uh, and it had bunk beds on our anniversary trip. So, so, cheapskate might be a word you could throw my way. Uh, I guess I think I've gotten a little bit better. But there was something that happened the other day that I think kind of draws a picture of the, the people having two different perspectives. We, uh, I, I grind coffee in the morning, and I, right now I've, got a, or I've had an electric coffee grinder that was a hand-me-down from somebody in our family that didn't want it. But I'm, I'm an early riser, and most of the family's still asleep, and so I I'm always, you know, trying to find some room and i turn, you know, close the door and turn on the the vent fan in the bathroom or go outside or something because if I grind the coffee, it's going to wake the whole house up. So I had heard that a manual grinder made the coffee better and I thought, man, that's awesome because it doesn't make as much noise. I won't wake the house up. So I had done the research and there was this one that I really liked but I felt like it was too expensive and I found the other version of it. I've actually got a picture here of it. It's the it's the version. It's the same thing, only different. Uh, You know, obviously made in China. The name uh, C K H A W F E E. Honestly, I just I just thought, oh yeah, that's a Chinese name, and I went on, and then Terry pointed out later that that's coffee. High quality, high quality. Twenty four dollars. I put it into my cart, and I was really debating back and forth for several weeks about was this worth it? I read all the reviews. It's going to take about 10 minutes to, to grind a pot of coffee. Was I willing to make that kind of investment each morning? Was I, was I, was I, was I? Was I. And then one day, one day I get this text that says, hey, it's being shipped uh, because Terry bought some running shoes and it was in the cart and she just hit go. <laughs> and that's the way a lot of my purchases happen. Terry just goes ahead and pushes the button. <gasps> Now, what's funny about that is I was at a friend's house uh, this past week, and I mentioned something about it taking 10 minutes, and but I, it's not that bad, and, and he said, well, it doesn't take 10, 10 minutes with mine, and I said, really, is what's, what's different about yours? And he said, well, probably because mine cost $200. I said, what? And he said, he said, yeah, but I figured you're going to have one coffee grinder in your lifetime. I'm going to buy this one. Which just showed how radically different our two perspectives were on the, on the topic, right? $24 was this major expense for me. 200 was a nothing for him. And I don't really know right, right or wrong, you know? But as we start this discussion about money, there are a few kind of overarching things that I think set the discussion. And before we dive into what we want to look at today, which is actually way back, Genesis chapter 4, I just want to kind of set the stage with some of these overarching thoughts. The first one comes from Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 24, and it, um, it's just this passage. I've got it here. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So just in a really, really, really simple way, I put this little picture together. I mean, everything is inside that circle of God owns it. The earth is inside that circle. You are inside that circle, and whatever we have that we call ours, it's inside the circle of, it's God's. And, and we get it, but it's God's. It's inside of his circle. And, um, you know, I, growing up when I did, and some of you guys are probably in the same stage, I had a steady dose of the Cosby Show. And I don't know if you all remember this, but Heath, uh, or Cl- uh, Cliff Huxtable would always tell Theo, his teenage son, Boy, I brought you into this world, and I'll take you out. Anybody remember that? Or is it just me? All right, boy, I brought you. You know, I, I, I kind of laughed at that back then, uh, being a teenage boy. Now that I've got teenage boys, I totally get it. There's this ownership level of, boy, I brought you into this world, and I had no joke. I'll take you out. And one place I see it, as far as ownership goes, is like when, when they go out to some activity... And there's an amount of money that you would expect that thing to cost. Like they're going to this event and you, you know, I do the accounting and I'm like, all right, you know, it costs about $5 to get in. You might get some snacks. All right, it's, I mean, max 10 bucks. All right, I'll give you 12. All right, so, so here's 12. But when I give it, I communicate, hey, this is my money. I'm giving it to you to go do this thing. My estimate is that this will be about $8, maybe $10. I'm giving you $12. $12 doesn't mean that you have $12 to spend. 12 means that you got extra money in your pocket just in case. But I'm expecting you to bring me four back because I'm expecting you to make decisions on this little adventure in the same way and through the same filter that your daddy would make them because it's daddy's money. Right? And it never comes out that way. I, nothing comes back, right? In fact, we owe somebody because they borrowed something from somebody on the trip. But, <laughs> but, that, but that's the idea. It's mine, and you have ownership of it for a while for this, for this purpose. But let's remember whose it is. And that's what it feels like, Psalm 20. I mean, it's all God's, and here we are in the middle of that, and we get ownership of it. But let's not forget who owns it all. All right, so that's just kind of one overarching theme. The other big one for Matthew 6, Jesus speaking here, a couple big things that he says. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So there's this link between your your treasure and, and your heart. And the idea that your bank account could say this, but your heart could say something different is just not true. Those two things are, are linked together and the way that he says it. Where your treasure is, you know, your heart is there. Almost like, I, I picture, you know, walking a dog and you've got this leash to your treasure back to your heart. Now, we've got a teacup chihuahua. And when we go for a walk and the teacup chihuahua is on a leash, it's where I want to go. And, uh, you know, if you were watching that, you might feel pretty bad for the teacup chihuahua because she gets jerked around quite a bit. Sometimes she does a flip and comes off the ground because where daddy wants to go, daddy goes. I have also gone on a run with a Doberman, full grown. And, and, and I, I realized about halfway through that run around uh, Lake that that the dog was running and I was on the leash. Not the other way around. Wherever that Doberman wanted to go, he took me. And I was, the whole time, I was just fighting him to get somewhere. Where, where our treasure is, our heart is also. And you can't, you can't say that those two things are going in, def, in separate directions. They are tied together. Another thing that he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Same, but, just, but different in kind of a way. That, that your attention and your affection cannot be towards both God and money. And one of the reasons that we have this series every single year, if you stay around the grove, there's going to be a, a section of time that we have a series where we talk about money. And one of the reasons is because Jesus says this right here. Of all the things that he could have said that would have battled for our attention, what does he say? He says, hey, there's this tension that happens and money's gonna fight to get all of your affection. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be in this war, and you can't love both. It's not possible to love both. Anybody in here ever had a funnel cake? I sure hope you have. Man, you got. Let's be honest, man. I mean, on uh, uh, the, th- the things that you could put in your body that you could taste on the planet, funnel cake has to be pretty high up there. I mean, donut, that dough, and you, you eat it when it's hot and grease is just kind of oozing out the side of it. The texture is better than a donut because, you know, it's, the consistency of it is not quite so soft, just firm enough. But, man, the texture is awesome. The taste is awesome. That powdered sugar, when it's doused, and when it goes on that grease, it's just sweet. You know, when you t- go to bite it, you breathe a little bit of that powdered sugar in. I mean, my goodness, it's like, kitty it get It ev- should be illegal. But there's a problem. It has uh, estimated, uh, it, you know, they're all different because they're handcrafted, right? But uh, Handcrafted. But you got uh, 1,000 calories at least, 50 grams of sugar, I mean, 50 grams of fat, 1,000 calories. So here's the b- battle I have. Like, if, if funnel cakes and fitness don't live in the same house, like, if I want to be in shape, then I can't eat a funnel cake. So I remember what a funnel cake was, but when I made a decision, that, and then I'm always in this battle when I see a funnel cake. I'm like, man, but I want that funnel cake. But the two things can't coexist. God and money can't coexist. It, it, both of them cannot have your affection. Right? So just kind of some big arching, overarching themes, those, those big thoughts. God owns it all. And uh, where your treasure is there, your heart is also. And then this idea that God and, and money, you cannot serve both of them at the same time. All right, with that context, let's go to Genesis chapter 4. And I think this is a really interesting passage to talk about, about money and about uh, giving. It is the story of Cain and Abel, which Genesis chapter 4, that's right after that story that we looked at just a few weeks ago. About Adam and Eve and, and the whole naked thing, which I found out later I really tried to say naked the whole time, and I must have said naked the whole time because I got made fun of later on. But anyway, I, I, I just will leave that alone, not, uh, not use that word at all. But, uh, but this is right, right after that, okay? And it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 Now Adam knew Eve, knew Eve his wife. Now, this knowing was not just knowing a lot about her. It was knowing in the, in, in the biblical sense. And, uh, and that meant a lot more than just knowing about her because it says, As a result, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted?" And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. All right. So what's, what's crucial to understand about this, for me, it's, it's big. This is, this is before Jesus uh, walks the earth. It's before Moses and the Ten Commandments. No commandment has been given at this point. You have the first children of Adam and Eve. As we enter into this story, uh, you immediately find out what their occupation is. It says that, that Abel was a keeper of the sheep and that Cain was a worker of the ground. And yet, there's this offering that's given. And so kind of the first thought here is that the offering was more of a compulsion than a command. It was a compulsion. It's just something they did. It says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, I'm going to ask you to think deeply about this story for a minute, okay? You've got, you've got no command, and yet these guys just automatically bring an offering. Now, when you, when you think about trying to get a gift for the man who has everything... You know, that, that's, that's really hard to do. My first response is, if a man has everything, then what gift does he need? He doesn't need one, right? He's got it all. And when you think about an offering to the God that owns everything, why would you bring a gift to the God who literally owns it all? What is the point? I mean, if I'm honest with myself, there's that question of, what, what he, nothing I give him is going to be of value. It's not like he needs any donation from me. So there's some distance between an offering that these guys are compelled to give and a donation, I'm not giving him something that's going to make him any more significant. I can't do that. Anything that I give seems like it's really pales in comparison to what he owns, and so kind of what's the point? And yet these guys are moved to give. In fact, I, I've seen this again and again the world over, that the creation is somehow inwardly compelled to offer worship, to offer gifts, to offer to the Creator. In fact, I'll, I'll never forget it. We, uh, we walked into a mall in Thailand one time, and there was a, a little idol uh, there beside the, the entrance into the mall. And when we walked in, there was a, Starbucks, a piping hot, fresh cup of Starbucks right there at the foot of the altar, and it, was, it had been offered to that idol. I got to be honest with you, I was really tempted to grab that coffee because <laughs> you could just still see the steam coming off the top of it. And I thought, man, that idol's not going to drink that coffee. Somebody needs to drink it. Somebody just needs to drink it. It's just sitting there, you know. Somebody needs to drink it. And in on one side, it made me really sad that somebody, you spent their money and set it there, and it's not going to be consumed. And then the other part of me thought, man, but it is, it is something that that person took the time Maybe they got themselves a cup, but they also got this this thing that they were worshiping. They they bought it a cup and they set it there, and they gave an offer. What would compel them to do that? Why? Just about uh, two weeks ago, I uh, I was on uh, I, I take trips to India pretty often, and I was on one of these trips, and I vid- visited something called the Mahakumela. I've got a picture of it here for you, the the Mela is the largest gathering of people for any kind of spiritual event on the planet. This year, over the course of this festival, there's expected to be about 150 million people. Uh, 150 million people, all right? Uh, A picture cannot do it justice because there's just so many people, and it's such a broad area along this riverbed just beside the river. And what they're there to do is to make offerings to worship, to bathe in the river. Now, that seems crazy. And I walked up and down this riverbed and, and watched all these people and all these things and all these offerings taking place. And again, it's kind of like the Starbucks cup. There's one side of me that just goes, man, this is just in, insane and it doesn't make any sense. And then when you start to ask the questions and then you start to think more deeply about it, this ancient civilization that's in this, this, uh, you know, kind of this delta area and that river that's flown through that area has given them water. It has fed the soil that's allowed for the crops to grow. It has fed the cows from which they get milk. They also take the dung from those cows and they use that to, to have heat and also to cook their food. And so in a real way... You know, the early civilization looked at the river and, and, and noticed and believed that it was the life giver. And so what do you do to the life giver? You, you, you make offerings to it. Why? Is anybody else, it's just, it's just wild to me that that's the way that it is, but, but it is. And inside of us, there is that deep need, that there, there's that deep compulsion to give to our creator God. To offer and to tell him how incredible he is by our, our small gifts that seem insignificant, but that are massive. And I thought about this. This is the best example that I have of, of uh, what it must feel like to God. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Brennan gave me a gift. And uh, I got a picture of it here so you can see it a little bit better. It is a gummy bear wallet. All right, now, on the open market, you may try to buy it from me this morning. I doubt I could get much, much for it. You know, um, again, you know, he, uh, he used duct tape and index cards to, to make this wallet. I, I purchased the duct tape, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I purchased the duct tape and the index cards. I don't know how much a, two index cards and a little bit of duct tape are worth, right, or how much that cost. Um, if you try to take this from me this morning, I'd probably pull your ears off. It, it, it's of very little value in one way, but to to his daddy, that thoughtfulness, that willingness to take things that were his and to make make something, for me, it, it's got a little note in it uh, that he gave to me that day. It says, for dad, this present is to the best and most awesome dad. I love you. This, this, this means a whole lot to me. Now think about your father God. When we take of the things that he's given us that are his anyway, but we take it and we think about him and we make some sort of offering, think how that makes him feel, how, how incredible that is and the relationship that it builds between you you in him. These two guys were compelled to give it. No command at this point in Scripture that we're given. But Cain and Abel make an offering. The second thing I notice is that there was a known expectation of what an acceptable offering would look like. There was a known expectation. And you see even later in the passage, Cain and Abel knew this. Deep down inside, they knew that there was, there was some sort of expectation, that it wasn't just a offering. But that it really needed to be their first and their best. If you look at it, it says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. And if you remember, the, the offering that that Cain made, it says it was it was an offering of the fruit from the ground. But Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. He brought the, the fat portions, he brought the best. And that's what God expected, the best. In fact, um, later on in Malachi, Malachi is a book that's right before the New Testament. I never can say Malachi without thinking about children of the corn and Malachi, so I'm trying not to. But Malachi is kind of a short book, and really there's a huge portion of it that has to deal with this and the way God views bringing kind of the the seconds and the leftovers. And this is what he says, Malachi chapter 1, verse 8. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, so the, the, the last and the least, when you, when you bring your leftovers, when you bring you know, the, the animals that you wouldn't want and that aren't any good to you, at the end of the day, what you've got left over, when you bring those to me, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame and sick, is that not evil? This is God talking. Present that to your governor, Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Which this is a really interesting line for us right now during tax season. You know, IRS does an audit. And uh, the way you've been operating is that you spend on whatever you want or need. And then whatever's left over, that's what you send to the IRS. Are they going to be all right with that? No, there's, there's an expectation, right? It, it's, for most of us, it comes out of our salary on the front end because it's a set amount. And you owe it. God says, will the governor, will the state be okay with this kind of perspective? Will you just take the last and the least? Or do they expect the first and the best? If this offering is not a donation, but it actually is an offering, then would it need to be your first and your best? Because it's more symbolic than anything. I am taking of my first and my best, and I'm offering it to you, God, because this is an, an offering. You don't come in and sing worship songs. Hopefully you don't, and just kind of half-heartedly do it. You, you give your best. Like, I can't sing very well, but the best I got, the best my pipes will do, that's what I try to sing with. You don't want to be around me because it sounds bad, but at least it's my best, right? I'm offering my best. There's a story in 2 Samuel that this reminds me of, and I may have mentioned this story before. It's just one of my favorites. David's hanging out with his guys at wartime, and, and he says, man, I really, I'm thirsty, and I really wish I had some of that sweet water from back in Bethlehem. I wish, man, I wish I had some of that water. And he's just kind of talking off the cuff. And a couple of his, his toughest, meanest guys, they go, all right. They sneak out. They go through the, through, through the enemy lines. They fight through and risk their own lives to get this cup of water. And they bring the water back to David. Now, what does David do when they hand him the water? He doesn't drink it. He just pours it out on the ground as an offering unto God. And the first time I read this story, I went, man, you've got to drink it, right? I mean, you got to, these, these guys risked their lives to bring you this water, and you're not going to drink the water. But what was he doing? No, now, this isn't just water, This is water from that place, and that makes it special. But now it has the lives of these men up on it. They risked their lives to bring this water, and now this is not just water anymore. This is symbolic. It's significant. And the only right thing to do with this water now is to offer it to God because it's too too special for me to drink myself. This offering that, that we should be compelled to give, that, that Abel specifically is, is compelled to give of his first and his best, it's, it's this symbolic thing that anything less is a joke. In fact, you saw it there in Malachi. God says that it's evil. Anything less than the first and the best. The last and the leftovers. What is that? And then the last thing I notice, which is, uh, which is really interesting to me, The value of the offering impacted the joy of the giver. Look at what it says. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. You know, kind of the end of the story is he goes out and he kills Abel. So he's pretty pretty fired up about it. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And actually, as I look more into this, a better rendering of that what he says there at the end is, uh, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? So you haven't done what you knew was right. What deep down in your soul, you knew that the first and best was what I expected and what was the just and right thing to do. So since you didn't do it, your face is fallen. But hey, If you do what is right, will not your face be lifted up? Somehow, Cain's joy was tied to this thing. That he was out of line. That he was out of place. That, what's a better word, the mojo of his life had gotten off track, you know? It's like, um, you know, if you board, I was on a subway the other day, and there are seats on the subway, uh, this metro in Delhi, that that are designated. This is for for the elderly or the people who have trouble standing. And so you just kind of know and when I see some young punk sitting in the elderly seat and there's an old lady standing up, there's that part of me that just knows that's not right. When um when some friend has done something for me and and it feels like man they've they've really there's a debt that's owed and I feel it and I know that I need I need to then repay that debt. And there's this part of me that as long as that's something's just not right. And this offering that Cain offered that was not in line with what it should have been, it, it took his joy away. And God called it because he, he's going to say good to Abel. And he's going to say that's not right to Cain. And God says, I mean, it's, it's not a donation. Remember, again, God didn't need it. It's not like, hey, this isn't enough. I need more. God's got it all. But God says, what is this joke? Do what is right and your joy will be full. Your, your countenance will be lifted up again. Guys, I think there's a lot at stake when we talk about this offering. Especially that last, that last part of this story makes me think there's a lot at stake for you and your personal joy and life. That your Creator, who has provided all things for you, that owns it all, that we offer back to Him a significant, symbolic first and best. And that there's something significant about that relationship, like this gummy bear wallet, that makes it sweet and special, the sacrifice that was made, the thoughtfulness that was there. And then also, just, just in me, that I know that He deserves it. And so I've offered it. It's big. You know, money isn't everything, but it's dangerously close to oxygen. And it says a whole lot about who we are, about what we do with it. So as we enter into this series, this is just kind of the, the first story that we want to throw out there to consider. What would it look like to offer to God a sacrificial offering that's worthy of the one who provided all things for you? What does it look like? So the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing a few songs and, and worship Him with our voices. Uh, the longer that, uh, that I try to figure out what it looks like to walk with Jesus, the more I figure out that I think worship, worship is the songs that we sing. But if we walk out of this room and the lives that we live, the things that we do, the amount of faith that we show in Him, the amount of trust that we give to Him, the, the way that we sacrifice for Him, those things sing louder than any song that we could ever sing. You know, they say the truth about what's in our hearts. And so let's sing these songs, and then also, you know, these, these buckets that we pass around are going to come by, and there's going to be the opportunity to offer unto Him. There's the chance to pray in the back of the room. There's the chance to take the Lord's Supper. But I ask you over these next few minutes just to think about what it would look like to offer unto your God the first and the best. Let me pray for us. Father, I I say that we love you a whole lot this morning and we want uh, not just to be right before you because you are God and you uh, you deserve it and that, you know, any kind of fear or reverence, even though that is there, there's also just this this compulsion that We want to know you, and we want to be in relationship with you. And you've done so much. And these songs we sang a minute ago, that last song that we sang about how much you love us. And Father, I know it it feels really feeble to offer anything back to you as big and as great and as awesome and incredible that you are. But Father, I pray that you would fill us with that compulsion to love you in this way. To communicate with our offering that we we see how big you are, we recognize what you've done, and, and we love you. We love you the best that we know how. We, we offer back to you our, our worship, our praise, and our gifts. Father, I pray that the end result of that would be a, a tight relationship with you and that you would fill our hearts with joy and peace to trust you with, with finances and trust you with all the question marks. Please do it to your glory. Amen. Amen.